to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Craig LaHoulier, who is the author of a wonderful, wonderful book on tomatoes called Epic Tomatoes. And if you don't have the book, you need to get it. I'll put a link up on um, our Facebook page so you can find it. Craig, you've been with us before, and when you were with us before, you were just starting out on this journey as an author and a public person. The book had just been published. So tell me what this year has been like. Well, I sure will, Daryl. Well, first of all, um, it's so nice to talk to you again. Um, thank you very much for the for the opportunity to speak to everyone about what has been a really unexpectedly fun and unpredictable and wild year. Um, and I, it's kind of fitting that my first appearances on your show and this are kind of bookending some of that... Um, rather unexpected, delightful chaos that I experienced. <laughs> so the book came out, and I think we did a few podcasts earlier in the year, but then um, some of the highlights of the year have been definitely speaking at the Northwest Flower and Garden Show out in Seattle and giving a couple of talks there, um, learning that when a publisher has you in a distant location, they like you to hit several spots. So each of our distant trips was peppered with a major event and then several minor events, which are all interesting and fun. Um, I would say the Philadelphia Flower Show was certainly a highlight. Um, having someone in the audience, Matt from Longwood Gardens, actually secured me a speaking engagement in May 2016 for doing a, a three-hour essentially all tomato workshop on tomatoes there. So that, that's something really to look oh, forward fun. to. Yeah, and, you know, so some of the things I'm learning is just um, you, you've been kind of in this business and arena for a long time, but making the contacts, making the friends, uh, never knowing where the contacts are going to come from, never knowing what is going to be in your email inbox or on your cell phone inbox on any given day. Um, uh, a few interesting statistics. Oh, well, before we get to the stats, and of course, I think the two highlights of my year were my book launch at a really great local bookstore named Quail Ridge. I remember on the drive telling my wife, you know, I really hope we can get 20 or 30 people there. And Sue says, well, you know, I think you'll get 50. You've been kind of known in this area. And 220 people and sold out books later. It was a night that you know, it was very humbling and gratifying, and I'll never forget. Wow. And then, yeah, it was it was it was pretty staggering. And of course, you know, I was I was new to this and ready to give a little informal talk to twenty or thirty people. And then when you know you get people standing in the aisles and they're looking for chairs and the room is absolutely full, your heart beats a little bit faster. <laughs> it does. It does that. I remember the first one that I gave up in the county courthouse room, and they figured, you know, 15, 20 people. It was standing room only. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And I don't, I have no idea what I said that day, but people apparently liked it because they were applauding and, and crowding around me afterwards. So. You know, that's a really good observation, and sometimes I tell people that, I'm, I'm an extrovert. My wife's an introvert, and, and she's learned through our 35 years of marriage that when I open my mouth, it's never quite certain what's going to come out. And, <laughs> I, I, and I've learned to manage that on the road quite a bit. It, <laughs> um, because, because if you do know your material and you've got a good story to tell, usually um, 
If you have slides, of course, you've got the great pictures to use as a guide. And in those occasions where I've not used slides, you can you can almost run the slides in your head and, mm-hmm. and speak with the same flow because it's a story that's that's near and dear to your heart. And uh, and I think one of the there's two crowning things that happened recently. Certainly, going out to Decorah, Iowa, and being able to give a keynote at the place that really catalyzed my immersion uh, into and love of heirlooms was, you know, really that that's a kind of a lifeless life list thing where you speak to an organization about how they influenced you and how that organization is pretty well single-handedly responsible for us gardeners these days to grow the amazing variety of open-pollinated everything that we can grow. Um, you know, we, we were in the process of losing a lot of stuff until the seed savers got going back in 1975. So we, we all of us who love heirlooms and you know, like to save seeds, have it. we just owe a great deal to that 40-year-old, still-going-strong organization. And you've um, been a part of that since, what, the early 80s? 80, for 86, I joined, and only a few years after that, I became their advisor for tomatoes, and we've had just a, a really great relationship ever since. And it's uh, one that's only growing with time. I'm actually back off to Decora in a few weeks to speak at their um, tomato tasting, which is kind of appropriate, and it's going to be really fun. And since my wife has heard my spiel so many times this year, um, <laughs> she's taking a, she's taking a pass on this one, and I'm flying my daughter out from Seattle. Um, she actually helps me an awful lot with my Facebooking and tweeting and blogging and all, and for her to have an opportunity to experience what it's like to be at the Seed Savers Farm, and, um, I, you know, it's just going to be kind of a special time, and since my wife gets to spend some time with her this week, I'll get to spend some time with her then, and then we'll all be back in Seattle next November, next uh, February when I speak at the Flower and Garden Show again. And, well, uh, it's, it's nice that you can involve the family in it. Um, so yeah. tell everybody about the Seed Savers Campout. Yeah. I think it, a lot of people know about that. So, well, it, it is the most wonderful event that they have held annually pretty much since the beginnings of the organization where essentially about two or 300 of the most avid seed savers um, plus people who are fairly new to the organization, people who are fairly local, but people do come from long distances as well. And really it's um, two days of... Lots of great talks. Uh, Joe Lample was there. Um, Amanda Joy was there. I spoke uh, in the past, Amy Goldman, Diana Wheely, Jeff McCormick. Um, and it's really all about open donated crops and seed saving and some of the stories that emerge when people discover and find and grow these seeds and a lot of stories about the relevance of seed saving and the importance of ensuring that those of us who work to garden have as one of our priorities identifying the young people that will be the seed savers of tomorrow. Because I'm sure, as, you, as you've recognized, Daryl, through the years, as I have as well, there, there is only a very finite and small amount of people who get deeply obsessed with any given hobby or topic. And um, mm-hmm. maybe it's one in a million, maybe it's one in two million young people that at the age of 8 or 10 or 12 
they've decided that gardening is what they want to do and seed saving is what they want to do. So I think all of us who love to do this, it's incumbent upon us to help locate those people um, so so that the effort to maintain our genetic heritage only only increases over time um, rather than decreases. You know what I mean? I, I do know what you mean. We need somebody, we need people to carry it on. But you know, I've been really impressed by the number of people that want to go into sustainable horticulture, the number of people that are enrolled in college classes. Yep, yep. And, and that is something that 15, 20 years ago was, was not even considered. Yeah, and it's almost like we've got a split that's formed. And it's, there's certainly a grouping of people who have been captivated by Facebook and Twitter and live their lives online and they're gamers and, and do that part of it. But then there's another part that's more maybe countercultural and into the quality of their own food and controlling the quality of their own food. And it, it reminds me a little bit of, so my parent, my mom, um, you know, post-World War II mother, convenience foods were the thing, right? Um, they didn't have to make their cakes from scratch. They could get a Duncan Hines or a Pillsbury or a Betty Crocker box. That was great to them. So then we grow up and we're like, yeah, you know, that's an easy cake to make, but it, it really doesn't taste that good. And look, here's the joy of cooking. This doesn't seem so hard. So then my wife and I retroed, and we now make most of our own bread and all of our cakes from scratch. And, you know, I roast my own coffee and do jam. And so I think what you're happening is in any, any given generation, maybe that group of people who are into sustainable horticulture, and farming, eggs, bees, you know, it, it's it's being guardian, guardians of the earth, guardians of all of the things that we grew up with that we've got to make stay around. And uh, I think we're awfully lucky about that observation that you notice that that is on the increase because that gives me hope. Well, I think there is is reason to hope. And if you look at Bree Arthur's um, f- Facebook page and mm-hmm. see her two neighbor kids that are so involved and so happy, I think we can catch this upcoming generation. Yes. Um, and amongst my seedling customers, every year I capture one or two or three, there maybe eight or ten or twelve, and maybe they would be nerdy. Or, you know, like at that age I was considered nerdy. But they want to know everything about what I do. They're the ones who are now involved in growing the dwarf tomatoes and sharing pictures of me on Facebook. And, uh, you know, if you can find a handful of these people every year, then you know other people are finding handfuls of them as well. And uh, that just may be enough. It, it's, that, it's that solid base, that undercurrent that will run consistently, no matter what, how, no matter how much the line wavers above. You have that basis, and that's what's really important. One thing that I'm really pleased about is the number of schools that are starting gardens for the kids, getting the kids outside, getting the kids involved and using it not just to teach them grow, how to grow their own food, but how to do science, how to observe, um, doing math with it, their reading yes. and writing assignments. And I think that that will help a lot. Get the kids involved. I don't know a kid around that doesn't like to play in the dirt. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of um, at the end of my seedling season, when I have lots of plants to donate, I'm convinced that many of them end up in young uh, families' gardens where the kids are the ones that are growing it because then I get to see them the following year, and instead of coming for two plants, they're coming for six or eight, or they're asking me all about that weird green tomato or that weird striped pepper. Um, 
know, the morphological differences and the beauty of these incredibly diverse heirlooms are part of the selling feature for young people because they look different. They look cool. They look interesting, don't they? Yeah, they're not the plain old red tomato that you see at the grocery store. Absolutely. So, so that you know, the Seed Savers was great. Um, I really, well, I, I did get to go to Briath Arthur's tomato party, which... And so she and I have gotten to meet a few times this year, and the you know I just get so much energy from her, and vice versa. So that was that was a meeting that had to happen. It was inevitable, right? We well, know that. I'm, I'm glad I was able to introduce you via email. <laughs> yes, because you know catalyst. <laughs> when when two people have the same interest, I think it's just yeah. kind of automatic that yep. you get them together, and it's yeah. a synergy. But you know, I'll tell you what's really interesting, and you've probably noticed this is. And my wife will say things like, well, Craig, you know, do you really need to do any more events in the Raleigh area? You've kind of saturated the area. But then I tell her my observation is that the gardening community is actually quite segmented and often not, not intentionally walled off for each other, but people, people travel in their circles, and the circles don't always meet. And so, I, you know, I could go up in the farmer's market to ten vendors, and seven of them would have no idea, or maybe eight would have no idea that I named the tomato Cherokee purple. And I have to <laughs> often provide evidence, whether it's a seed catalog and a driver's license. And you know, uh, and, and when I think of how many, I got to hear, hear more of this story. But we yeah, need to yeah. take a little break right now, <laughs> and we'll be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Craig LaHouillier, the NC Tomato Man, the author of Epic Tomatoes. And right before the break, he was going to tell us how some people don't know that he named Cherokee Purple. You want to tell them the, the story about that? Yes, yeah, so probably the, the most interesting one is there was a farm stand at the end of the street um, selling these beautiful Cherokee Purples, and a young person working there, and I said, and, and this is... This is kind of a little way that I rib them, where I'll go up and I'll say, oh, you know, my namesake, it's so nice to see my baby, I named that tomato. And you get disbelief or you get, yeah, right. And so I would travel around with a seed catalog, Johnny's, or tomato growers that have my name in it and show them my driver's license. And then <laughs> the look on their face of a little bit of disbelief saying, holy uh, crap, although maybe it isn't crap that they say. Uh, <laughs> 
you are the guy that named Cherokee Purple. And it, it's just one of those fun things that, um, and, and maybe the point to make about this is when, when Epic Tomatoes came out, it's my first book, and I always assumed a book will come out, you'll have a launch, it will make a bit of a splash, people will hear about it, and then it will just kind of go quiet. And I, I, I'm learning many, many things about being an author. And in fact, I'm keeping a journal, and I've written in it every day, and what I'm writing about is what it feels like to have written, to have a book out, to handle the events. And, and in a way, it, it could be a book about what it's like to have a book out, but we'll get to that maybe in a few years. But um, the point, I, yeah, the point I was trying to make around this is is that you just never, you never know. You you go to events, and a book is more like a marathon. And anything in particular that's a topic or an interest or a fad, you think it hits the public and everybody knows about it, but it takes years for information to seek into the public consciousness and. You know, from what I can tell on Amazon, from what I can tell based on the events that I'm getting contacted to do, it's been a pretty much straight line, steady state of activity starting in January, and it hasn't really dissipated one iota. And well, but, but you've got a book that appeals to a lot of different things. People that love tomatoes want to know more about tomatoes, and you are hands down the expert on tomatoes because you found so many of them you've t gotten some out of the seed bank like with Cherokee purple receiving the seeds and and spreading them around and so people want to hear the story you're you're the connection to the past for most people and then you also look at your book and you look at the pictures and you look at your recipes and your enthusiasm comes all through it well, that's very nice for you to say, Daryl. And it, if you know, if reading the book can, in some way, um, represent what it would be like if you and I were standing around the garden and I were taking was taking you through my plants, then I would have accomplished what I set out to do because I've I've really ne I've never been trained to write. I love to blog and I love to talk. As as like I said before, my wife would tell you I have no shortage of words. Um, but so pretty much I decided when I wrote the book to just have a conversation with everyone about something that I really love. And I guess it worked. Um, yeah, it and, showed. And the, and the cooking part is interesting because I'm getting tapped to do a few cooking school demonstrations, and those are starting to increase. And, uh, you know, the local um, food writer for the News and Observer, Andrea Weagle, came over and we did a session just on some of the recipes I was cooking, which was a lot of fun, and I'm going to be on the Splendid Table on September. I had a um, really, really nice chat with Lynn Rosetta Casper a few weeks ago uh, in a studio in Durham. So, again, it's I, I have no preconceived notion on what the future brings, because I never worry about that. What, what I like to do is do things that I think are fun and meaningful, bring as many people along for the ride as I can, and teach, but learn just as much from my audiences as I can impart to them, and then just see what happens and have fun. Um, what have you learned from your audiences life. this year? Oh, wonderful, wonderful question. Um, so, Well, I'm going to give you um, a very interesting statistic, like I said, I promised. Um, so... By the end of this year, I will have fulfilled somewhere around 75 to 80 events 
the street events around yikes. New York, which is just, yes, yeah, it's yipes and other words one could use uh, that I had no, no conception. And somebody asked me a few weeks ago, how many people have you come in contact with in your events? And so being a scientist and loving data, you can probably picture me there with my calculator <laughs> and my... I, I have spoken to somewhere around 3,000 people this year. Wow. And in that, in, in that incredibly large number of people, I would say only two folks had been somewhat challenging, meaning maybe a clash of personalities or... Um, just something, some interaction that made it a little bit less comfortable, but that's life, right? I mean, we, we walk through life and we could be in a grocery store in traffic and, and run into people who we have issues with because we're so diverse. And I'm sure we, we all give people issues ourselves. But I wanted to raise this because it's a testament to gardeners, the gardening community. If you were to do the fraction two out of 2,900, it would be infinitesimal. And so what I've learned from my audiences gardeners are wonderful, open, curious, giving, sharing, generous people who are hungry for information and just as willing and desirable in wanting to impart what they've learned back at you. And maybe it's how I approach my audiences and how I approach people, but I feel like I've made almost 3,000 new best, new best friends just because it has been so um, rewarding and gratifying and meaningful to me to learn that in Seattle um, they really have trouble getting their tomatoes to ripen. So the big, and they also have issues with late blight. In Virginia, they are really plagued by stink bugs and uh, squirrels. Oh, and I forget to mention, in Seattle, plagued by squirrels. And in Raleigh, it's squirrels and fusarium wilt. And so. I can kind of map the country that I've spoken to in terms of what issues they deal with in terms of their tomatoes, but the one common denominator seems to be squirrels, no matter where I've spoken. <laughs> yep, they they do. Squirrels are terrible. If they don't dig up your seedlings when you first plant them, they're stealing your tomatoes. My sister grows, has tried to grow many many over many years, tried to grow um, tomatoes on her deck. And it's right. a really steep way to get up under her deck. And every dang year, the squirrels run up, and they <laughs> snatch a tomato, they eat half of it, and then they run and get another one. Yeah, it, it, it's tough. And we're, we're fortunate in that the squirrels, even though we have them around, they leave us alone. And, and my postulate on that is we have hawks, we have owls, uh, we have cats that are out, you know, the neighbors do keep outdoor cats. We, we have wolves and coyotes and fox. I mean, not wolf, sorry, fox and coyote. So I, it, my, my um, four-legged creatures that cause the most problem vary every year. And one year it's a groundhog, and one year it's a rabbit. Uh, or it's, it's the slithery little slugs that, you know, you go, oh, wow, look at my beans germinate. I get all their little hats on that are about to pop open. You go out the next day and all the hats are missing. All you've got is, all that you've got are a little stick. So, um, so what I try to share with the audience is how optimistic gardeners are because as challenging as a year can be, and we all have very difficult years, when those seed catalogs come in, we start thinking about how we can increase the size of our gardens and grow even more. And so, we, you know, we get knocked down, but we really pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and just go right back at it, don't we? 
We do. We do. I, I, the gardeners are optimists. It's like when you plant a tree. You're not going to be around to see it when you get old, but you're planting a tree because it's an act of love or an yeah. act of faith or an act of hoping for the future. Now, does anybody have a cure for the squirrel problem? <coughs> well, you know, I've, I've, re- I've researched it a lot, and really it comes down to um, if, if if you provide nearby food and water sources, that's great. And if they go to that, that's one way to ease the problem. If they have fallen in love with your tomatoes and ignore the water and food sources, you're in trouble. Yeah. If you're then in trouble and humane means of trapping like Havahart's, if they outsmart those, if, well, if they work, you may be okay if your local regional regulations are fine with you trapping squirrels and it's okay you're, you're breaking you up a little bit. Can, can you read yeah, that? Uh, sure. <laughs> um, when you do do a, like a have a heart trap, then you really need to check out is your local regulation make it okay for you to do that and where are you going to move them to and is it okay for you to move them there if the trapping doesn't work then you're then you're down to the same problem and it all comes down daryl to physical barriers and being very clever with um, one customer made these really nice mesh bags that he would uh he would wrap around the developing clusters of tomatoes and be able to pull a drawstring on the top and once the tomatoes ripen he could open them up and get the tomatoes so it really does come down to, you know, some kind of a mesh or a cage or something that you can put between the squirrel and your plant, which is unfortunate. It makes a little bit more work for a gardener, but it also makes a gardener think about how much do they want those tomatoes versus the squirrel's desires. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I want my tomatoes really badly. I'm not going to let squirrels have them. <clears throat> so I've had chipmunks. Before the cats moved to the front yard, I had chipmunks coming in, and I would look, and there would be a tomato, and I would go to pick it. And these dang things were standing up on their hind legs to get the tomatoes and clinging yeah. from the cages to get the tomatoes. But fortunately, yeah. the, the stray cats moved into the front yard and, and started tracking them down. And that, you know, and that is a very controversial point as well. Uh, my last newsletter, I wrote about squirrels, and I wrote about, you know, the outdoor cat situation, and I did get a very well-written, nicely worded, very concerned email from someone who is a bird lover and um, worries about the impact of, of cats on wild birds and worries about the impact of feral cats and possibilities of biting people. And so maybe that's another learning this year. And maybe we all who write and we interact with the public through podcasts, we we have to pick and choose our words carefully in that, especially extroverts like me who tend sometimes to talk before I think, need to think through things because something that you may have done all your life, you just haven't given sufficient thought of to think about who, what that technique may be offensive to. And, you know, what it may run counter to, even as far as your own personal philosophy. I'm a bird lover, and we used to have an outdoor cat. That's an inconsistency. So I think thinking through some of these things can help you clean up some of your personal defaults and inconsistencies that we just kind of grow up with, don't we? I, I think you're right. Um, and the, the, I'm on a number of bird lists, and the, th- the question about cats and birds always come up. 
Yep. On the other hand, rodents will take out birds too, and yep. cats yep. are very good at taking out the rodents. I've had I've had rats trying to get to my chicks before, and yep. I've seen rats running up a tree to a nest to to a yep. birdhouse, and. You see that, and then you kind of wonder, we're not going to solve this problem in our lifetime, I don't think. But but it is something for people to think about. I try to get all the cats in that I can, and that's why I have 10 yep. cats in the house, and I've sure. rehomed 16, you know. But yeah. anyway, that's a, sub- that's a subject for another day. We have to take a little break right now, but we'll be back with more of America's Homegrown Veggies right after this. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. This week I'm talking to Craig LaHuyer, the NC Tomato Man and author of Epic Tomatoes. And Craig, we were talking about wildlife issues right before the break. But I'd also like to talk about some of the issues that we on the East Coast and some of our um, Midwestern friends that have been just deluged. How has that done, what has that done to your garden? Well, it, it What's really interesting about rain patterns is they're they're not consistent, and we actually in North Raleigh have had a relatively dry year, which is meant for a relatively healthy tomato crop. Um, what happens um, is, as, as I'm sure a lot of people know, is many of the fungal diseases that are detrimental to tomato health reside in plant degree below the plant or in the soil, and so a heavy rain will make foliage wet, which if there's spores around, it will help them stick. A heavy rain will splash the soil and splash potentially spore-laden soil onto the lower foliage. And to make matters worse, many of these fungal diseases are triggered by high heat and humidity. So they may be present, they may be present on your plants, but it's early in the season, it's still relatively cool, your plants are growing great. The heat, you know, somebody turns up the thermostat, it's those days where you have to drag yourself out to water. It's really hot and humid. Your plant that was perfectly healthy yesterday is starting to show signs of stress. And um, so a few things that I've done, and we, made me, we can touch upon some of my projects this year because uh, the, I took straw bales to a much greater extreme this year, and my, my tomatoes and straw bales were really, um, and they still are, in really, really good condition. So I think it's all about how do you ensure that you have a good seed source or a good seedling because some of these fungal diseases can be either seed and or seedling born. In other words, they can be in the seed and get into the young plant or you can purchase a seedling and the spores could be in the vascular system and you wouldn't know until the plant grew and it got warm enough. Yeah, given that, um, the medium that you planted in, if you plant in containers, switching out your old and bringing in new 
and making sure it's a good sterile potty mix or making it from compost, making your own mix, but making sure it doesn't have plant debris or any material from previous years. Once you get your tomatoes planted, how do you um, ensure that there's going to be as much air circulation and spacing as possible? So the sun is a very, very good um, disinfectant. So if you can get sunshine on those wet leaves, it will help. If you can get air circulating around those leaves, you're less likely for spore formation to take hold. Mulch immediately when you plant those plants and prevent that dirt from splashing up onto the leaves. So those are all what I call kind of your preemptive hygienic approaches. If the inevitable happens and you start seeing those dark brown spots on your lower foliage and they start getting a little bit of yellow around them, it's probably early blight, Altamaria, which is a fungus, or Septoria, which is a fungus, Septoria leaf spot. And I go around each morning with scissors and I clean the scissors with a disinfectant between plants and I remove the lower foliage and get it out of the way. And in doing that this year, I've had a really um, very good year. Now, I mentioned lots of different things and so what I did not do is be the good scientist and do the control studies and have a plant with uncut foliage next to one that I cut. Um, but I think any of those things have been reported to work and have worked for me. And uh, that's helped me to have my best year um, in, in a decade. And yet, within 10 miles or 20 miles of me, we were at a tomato dinner the other night in Raleigh, and I asked for a show of hands. People within a 20-mile radius have had some of their worst gardens ever, probably weather-related, probably garden hygiene-related. Um, very complex issues, um, these disease things, aren't they, Daryl? They are very complex. Um, as you probably know, I garden exclusively above ground now, either in containers or in hay bales. Yeah. And what has surprised me is even with um, brand new bale of ProMix that huh? I've in some containers, and the containers were all clean. They were scrubbed out, yeah. and some of them were brand new. And, and the ones that were, had been used had been bleached. Yeah. Um, but I ended up with fusarium in one of them. Yeah. I yeah. ended up with bacterial wilt on my sun gold. It just went down like a wow. rock. I mean, just yeah. it, it, in a matter of days, it went from a little bit of wilt to, you know, just hanging limp. Um, yeah. You mentioned seed-borne diseases. Yes. What seed-borne diseases of tomatoes are there? You know, it's hard to find a definitive list that I feel completely comfortable with because, as you know, when researching gardening topics, there's a lot of anecdotal material that you mm -hmm. have to sift through. From what, from what I've read, early blight, Altamaria can be seed-borne. Um, bacterial wilt can possibly be seed-borne. And... Uh, Fusarium will possibly be seedborne. So some of the real, <laughs> okay. so some of the real bad ones, and um, so I've noticed the same thing this year. I'm growing in pristine virgin straw bales, and I'll have a, one of my first dwarf plants that went down went down to fusarium will. And so I'm thinking there's two possible vectors. Well, let's say that there's three possible vectors. One would be seedborne um, because the seed that I used. Um, came from another gardener. And we'll talk about pre-seed treatment in a moment. But the second, and which I think is insufficiently explored, is, and I, it's really hard to find data on this, which diseases can be transmitted by insects if 
let's say a stink bug or uh, a looper or, or some moth that's going to turn into a tomato fruit worm, maybe a flea beetle, choose on a plant that has fusarium wilt fungus running around its vascular system. If that insect then moves to a, a plant that is unaffected, will it be able to transmit that? Um, and I'm more, uh, you know, I'm more concerned with insect transmission of things like bacterial wilt and fusarium wilt than I am about early blight, because that really seems to be less serious, more controllable. You know, the way it works itself up from the bottom up, and there are controls right. used. But you're right; those those real baddies, the ones that, uh, you know, tomato spotted wilt, where, and maybe maybe that's a good. I'm thinking out loud here, but if tomato spotted wilt is spread by thrips that are infected with the virus that chew on the tomato flowers, then why can't fusarium wilt um, or bacterial wilt be spread by other chewing insects that have it in their mouth? And again, uh, this is all speculation, and maybe we're planting a seed for future work or studies here, but wouldn't it be interesting to know that if you're a gardener and do everything you possibly can, whether it's pre-treating your seed, you know, bleaching, detergenting, starting everything from fresh, your plants are still going down, the one thing that you haven't been able to control is the potential insect vector. Or, of course, if there's windblown agents, spores or bacteria that come in and adhere to wet foliage, that would be the other possible way. But what it tells you is that growing tomatoes well is not easy, it's not a given, and it's not a guaranteed consistent year to year, is it? Definitely not. Some years, you know, things will go down really fast, early blight, because you can't get out there because it's raining every dang day. Right. And right. other years, like this year, we had a very cool, very wet spring, and yeah. late blight took out a bunch of stuff. Um, wow. And and this year was the first year I've ever had problems with sun gold. It was from a reputable, well-known seed house, and right. um, and every plant that I grew had had bacteria went down to bacterial wilt. Wow. Even ones that, that were not in my own garden. And that really does well. It, it raises all sorts of questions that are certainly worth investigating. But um. Yeah, let me design a let me design a project, Daryl, and I'll get back to you. <laughs> okay, works works for me. Um, uh, now, in the case if if yeah. it was d- bad seeds, how do if people want to be extra special, careful? Yeah, you know, oh, perhaps I, they've saved seeds or gotten them from yeah. a neighbor. What do they do about it? So there's from what I've read, and I'm, it, it, and this is really interesting because, as you know, in any gardening topic, we have majors and minors. So. I, I like to tell people tomato, and I'm a snake plant. And within tomatoes, I like to tell people I major in stories, history, diversity, color, flavor, and I minor in disease and culture. So these are great questions for me because they make me uh, think and ponder and do research. And from what I've read, there are two types of seed treatments that can help remove um, some particular seed-borne diseases, and I'd have to look up the research. One of them is a um, bleach treatment, and one of them is a hot water treatment. And the reason, I don't have the information in front of me, but one of them you actually can do as you're saving the seeds. So you're actually saving 
um, a cleaner seed or a better quality seed if there was potential seed-borne disease. And the other is best done just before you plant it. And I'm almost thinking that the bleaching is done during seed saving if you grow that root and the hot water treatment is done just before you plant. But I would have to go, you know, nobody who's listening today should take that as gospel. And again, that's an area. Perhaps you can look it up and let me know and I'll put it on our Facebook page. Yeah, because I think this is ta- this is taking seed saving and seed starting to a maybe another level of detail that many people aren't aware of. That you're, you're not just kind of stuck with the seed you have. There is something extra and additional you can do to help ensure success. And I think it's good to see if we can. Uh, I will do some research on that and get back to you, and you can post it. That will be wonderful because I know I have always thought that just fermenting the seed like we'll talk about in a little while, was sufficient sure. to for disease control because, you know, it's fairly acid. Um, right. And, of course, you can tell by the smell that there's an awful lot of, of competing bacteria going on in there. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but when you find out that that isn't the case, I right. remember getting seed from a, a very dear friend who was always meticulous about fermenting the seeds yeah. and carefully rinsing them, and there was never a speck of um, foreign matter on them. And, yeah. you know, they went down in a big hurry. And he apologized yeah. to me the next year saying, yeah. you know, I, he didn't, he couldn't imagine what happened, but it happened to him too. So we know yeah. it was the seeds, you know, two different locations separated by several hundred yeah. miles. Um, so so that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it may be the next level of detail to delve into. Absolutely. Good. I, I, I'm dying to know what you find out because, you know, when you go through all the trouble and the expense of buying fresh material every year and fresh containers or bleaching the heck out of the ones that you've got yeah. after you've scrubbed out every last little bit of dirt out of them, and then you have something like that happen, it's a real big disappointment. And I especially don't like to disappoint other people to whom I, you know, give plants. Um, yep, it, it just breaks my heart, especially if they're a beginning gardener. I don't big want gardeners. a beginning gardener to be gardeners disappointed. Gardeners have big hearts. Big hearts uh, we, we have the empathy gene, us gardeners. We, we definitely want everybody to succeed. And it's, um, it, you know, it, gardening, it, you know, when you think about it, gardening is totally optional. You don't have, a, have to have a garden. But gardening, things that happen in the garden will definitely keep you up at night. So figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to take another little break right now. And But when we come back, I want to talk about seed saving and what you know and maybe some other tips that you can give to gardeners for better success next year. We'll be back with America's Homegrown Veggies right after this. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I am talking to Craig LaHoulier, the NC Tomato Man, author of Epic Tomatoes. And, and I've got to tell everybody again, it's just a wonderful book. But now, Craig, a lot of people don't know that they can save seeds from any of their open-pollinated tomatoes. Well, actually, they can save seeds from hybrids, too, but they're not guaranteed to get the same thing again. So tell sure, people sure. how they might do that. Well, I'm going to cover several birds with this stone because a lot of people will say, I want to save seeds from variety X, but they're planted really close together, so I'm not going to save them. And I'll tell them, sure you can. There's ways to time your seed saving so that even if you have plants within two or three feet apart, um, you can save seeds and have a good 98, 99% chance of them coming true. And it's all about knowing when the bees visit the blossoms. Um, so it's important to know that tomato flowers are perfect, meaning they have male and female. And greater than 90% of the time, as the flower opens, the anther brushes against the style, the pollen is transferred, and a tomato will form. And even if the bee visits that flower afterwards, the bee's already done. So that's why tomatoes are such a popular crop to save, because in so many of, that's why so many of them still exist that have been around for a long time, because their rate of cross-pollination is much lower than other crops. What I do to help is to look for the first or second cluster on the plant low down. You don't have to worry about thinking that the genetic material in any given tomato on a plant is going to be different. If the variety is stable, you could pick a tomato early, mid, late, small, medium, large, blossom end rot, no blossom end rot, and the, and the quality of the seed will be the same. But I want to get my tomato before the bees get interested in my tomato blossoms. And so I'll save seeds from those first few, and in doing tests, I've found I'm getting 98, 99 plus percent purity. And how I test that is I have a potato leaf variety between two regular leaf varieties. Potato leaf is, is um, that regular leaf is dominant to potato leaf. So if I save the potato leaf variety, if I'm going to get crossing, it would probably be from a neighboring plant. And if I count the numbers of regular leaf seedlings in my potato leaves, that's how I estimate my crossing. And often I'll get zero out of 50 or maybe one out of 100. And so that's, that's really pretty good. If you want to take it to a greater extent, you get like a little bag that wedding favors come in, very light mesh, and you wrap it around your flower cluster before any of the flowers open. Let the flowers open, the tomatoes set fruit. You can mark that cluster with a twisty tie because you're guaranteed 100% that all of the tomatoes in that cluster will be fine. Um, so as far as saving itself, it's pretty easy. Make sure you know which tomato you're saving it from. So I like to write on my tomato shoulders with a Sharpie, and they're labeled, and then I write on a cup exactly what that is. Bring it in the house, slice it in half, squish the goop into the cup, if it's too thick, add just a teeny bit of water so that you can swirl it a little bit. And then I'll take all of those label cups and put them in my, my garage, loosely cover with a paper towel because it does smell when the fermentation process starts and the flies will be extremely interested and they will get in there and lay eggs. And you won't only be saving seeds, but you'll be saving little creepy crawly worms, which isn't a bad thing, but it's kind of nasty and it makes it smell even worse. Um, been there, done there. Yeah. In warm weather, you only want to let this go two to three days because if you think about a tomato seed, it's covered with gel. 
tomatoes are 95% water. When you cut a tomato open, why don't you see a bunch of little plants? It's because there's a germination inhibitor coating each seed, and the inhibitor is kept on the seed by the gel. The fermentation process breaks the gel down, which means that germination inhibitor gets washed off the seed. So in warm conditions, if you let those ferment for more than three or four days, you will have a cup of germinating tomato seedlings. So you want to work pretty quick. I bring them in the house, I add water, stir it up, decant off all of the yucky goop on the top or put it in your compost bin. The good seeds sink to the bottom. I repeat that a few times, water, stir, decant. You get this, these beautiful seeds sitting at the clear liquid and I sit it through. I, um, in, I take a face cloth or a cloth and touch it to the bottom to get any excess water off and uh, on a paper plate. And within about a week, they're nice and dry. You can package them up. Uh, I use coin envelopes. Um, you can use pill bottles. And even kept at room temperature, they'll be good for 12 to 14 years. And the germination really only starts dropping off at year 12. So you have yourself a lot of seeds that you can share. And most tomatoes have 70 to 100 to 125 seeds in them, unless they're the really, really meaty paste or heart types. Um, that's pretty much how I do it, Daryl. And I've... I've saved seeds from my 115 types of tomatoes, my 40 types of peppers, my 15 types of eggplant. It's all done. I've gotten all my seed saving done this year. That's early. Well, I, I consider it early, but you started earlier because you were going to be on the road, too. So, And I like to save those early fruits because then I'm... So I'm getting it done early because I'm helping ensure. Now, the, other, the flip side of that is you can wait for your later fruit because the bee interest in your tomato flowers really starts waning as the, as the weather gets cool. So you can leave your seed saving for the last fruit on the plant because the bees have probably lost interest you know, in your area on tomato flowers by then too. It's only if you're saving seeds in the very middle of the season, walk out in your garden, you can hear the bees humming, that you're, you're getting up to more of a 5-6% chance of crossing. But even then, and if you grow something that doesn't look like what it's that's how you can get a start on some really interesting projects. <laughs> yep, like the dwarf tomato projects that we talked yeah, about exactly. before, and yeah, some exactly. of some of your varieties like Lucky Cross. Yep. Now, Craig, yep. you mentioned, and somebody's going to ask me otherwise. Um, you mentioned that seeds don't ever germinate in a tomato. Well, no, nope. I don't. I don't don't think you used the the word ever, but they don't grow, germinate inside of a tomato. But somebody's out there is probably waving their hand saying, "But they do, they do, they do. They sometimes do." Yeah. If, tomato get, if they let the tomato get really overripe, you started the fermentation process inside the tomato, which is causing that gel to start breaking down. So as soon as that happens, the inhibitor then leaches away from this. You're breaking up a little bit again. But so yeah, you, want to, yeah. you want yeah. to make so sure that, that their tomato isn't overripe. Isn't overripe. So a, a very, very ripe, nearly rotting tomato will almost assuredly be a perfect incubator for baby tomato plants because the fermentation is already happening right in that fruit. <laughs> I, I, it just always astounds me when I see something like that. And, and people yeah. have asked me and asked me over, and I, I said, well, I'm sure it's because the germination inhibitor is broken down. But sometimes right. the fruit doesn't smell like it's overripe, and that's, so, so I wondered about that. Um, now, when people sometimes think that their tomato has to ripen on the vine to be, you know, it can be completely red or yellow or orange or whatever color it's supposed to be, 
before they can save seeds from it. But that's right. not true, is it? Well, it's not true for two reasons. Um, the big heirlooms that we love to grow and eat will often blush color. And, you know, they'll, they'll be half color on the plant. You look at them and you're like, if only I could take them off the plant. Because what, what are the things that can happen if you leave them? A critter comes and finds it. Or um, it's going to get a heavy rain. Yeah, or, or, or it cracks. And so what I've found over the last few years, and uh, this has been pretty well confirmed by science, is that tomatoes do ripen from the inside out. And if you're seeing a good half blush on the outside, that tomato's already well on its way to have developed the potential for the flavors that it would have if you were to let it vine ripen. So I've actually gone into the, pra the practice of picking most of my tomatoes half ripe, bringing them in, and they, they ripen very, very quickly. Within a few days, they'll go from half ripe to fully ripe. And um, even a full-size green tomato at the end of the year, if you bring it in and you put an apple or a banana near it, and those ripe fruits will give off ethylene gas, which is the ripening hormone for tomatoes, your tomato will color up and you can save seeds from it and those seeds will be perfectly viable. Um, so, you know, if, you, if you've missed the boat on your ripe tomatoes and your end of the year and you haven't saved seeds from your cherished family heirloom, as long as you let the tomatoes get really close to full size, you can bring them in and kind of force ripen them with the ethylene gas, save your seed, and you'll be good to go. Now, if tomatoes ripen from the inside out, how come they often have white stems and white cores that are looking very obviously underripe? Yeah, that is more of a testament to either the ripening conditions or the culture of the tomato um, or the fact that that particular tomato has a genetic tendency for hard cores or white cores. So I, there's, there's really a two-part answer to that. It could be physiological, meaning the conditions for that tomato, um, it just didn't work for it, whether it was too much or not enough rain, too much or not enough heat, the ripening process didn't proceed normally. But you just do get certain tomatoes, and I know German Johnson is one of them. They always have kind of a big, hard core near the stem end that you have to cut around and cut, cut out because it's just not very um, tasty. And uh, one of the things I've also noticed in this thing about ripening from the inside out is some people, I'm sure, will have a tomato and it looks perfectly ripe, and they'll cut it open, and it doesn't smell good, and the interior color looks darker and soft. And so the tomato has actually started over-ripening from the inside out, and the flavor of that tomato will not be good. It will, it will stay. Anybody who's eaten a bad tomato, it's kind of like eating a bad shrimp or, you know, it almost puts you off tomatoes for a while. So if your tomato doesn't look good on the inside, if it's runny, if the flesh is too dark, if it has an off-putting aroma, there's your seed-saving tomato probably. <laughs> but after <laughs> You don't want to put that in your bisque or your soup or your gazpacho because that one tomato bad flavor would overcome all of the good that you put into there. <laughs> yes, it, it will do that. Craig, we only have about a minute and a little bit here. So tell people where they can get hold of you. What's your, you have a blog, a website. Sure, sure. So I'm easily reachable on email, which is just nctomatoman at gmail.com. I blog, at my, I blog about my garden, the good, the bad, and the 
disastrous at nctomatoman.com and I'm blogging less frequently but occasionally about the book at epictomatoes.com and those are kind of stories from the road places I go and people I meet and I also have a monthly newsletter that um, the link of which can be found on um, if you email me there's a sign up link at the bottom of that as well and so I try to communicate a lot with people well, next, I'll talk about all the plans that I've got in the works because I'm thinking of doing a podcast, and I'm thinking of doing a video series, and book two comes out in December, and book three proposal is in progress. So instead of being at the beginnings of things, Daryl, I feel like I've just gotten onto the road, and uh, it, it's going to be a really fun trip. <laughs> I think it will be, too. Can you tell people about your upcoming book? Yes. Straw bale gardening. Uh, it's going to be growing vegetables and straw bales, and that will be a story basics book. It will be, um, you know, easily obtainable. Um, it's got drawings instead of pictures. It will just be a nice little pamphlet type book. Uh, one of their how tos for for how to embark on the the joy and fun of growing vegetables and straw bales. That will be available everywhere as of December. And then we're still Great. thinking about number three, so I'm not even going to talk about that right now. Okay. Well, we will have to get you back on when it gets closer to time for your new book to come out. Thank you again for being with us today on America's Homegrown Veggies, and I look forward to speaking to you again. That's all the time we have for today, but we'll be back next week. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Peter Wallace inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.